Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and today's special guest, Congressman John Yarmuth. In 1996, reflecting the uncertainty of that time, President Bill Clinton famously said, the era of big government is over. Well, he actually hasn't said it yet, but by his actions in 2021, reflecting the needs of this time, President Joe Biden has in effect announced the era of big government is back, big time. Biden's $2 trillion physical infrastructure package coming on top of his $2 trillion stimulus and a soon to be announced $2 trillion human infrastructure plan has been called the biggest and the boldest public investment initiative since the days of FDR. Of course, announcing big proposals is one thing, getting them through Congress, even a democratically controlled Congress, is another. And after Speaker Nancy Pelosi, nobody will play a more important role in steering President Biden's legislation through Congress than Congressman John Yarmuth, chair of the House Budget Committee. So can Democrats round up enough votes in the House and Senate? Let's ask the good Congressman. Congressman Yarmuth, good to talk to you, and thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. I want to start with uh, some recent breaking news of President Biden saying that uh, 20 years in Afghanistan, we had achieved whatever we could achieve, and it's time to bring all American troops home. Did he do the right thing? Oh, I think he did. Uh, as it is said very often, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting <laughs> a different result. And that's what we've been doing for for the balance of those 20 years. But even more so than that, I mean, the, the people, if you remember, those people who remember Charlie Wilson's war and think back to the Russian experience in, in Afghanistan and, and how disastrous that was for them and frustrating. So, you know, we probably should have learned something uh, from, from that experience. We didn't. Uh, and I certainly think the last 20 years kind of echoed that, uh, that Russian experience. It's just a country that um, you can't a accomplish much as a foreign uh, influencer. So I, I think he did the right thing. Um, it's, I would have supported it um, under, if Obama had done it, I would have supported it if Trump had done it. So I'm glad that, J that Joe Biden has finally decisively done it. Uh, and one of the uh, biggest challenges certainly now facing uh, the congressman, and particularly with your role as the chair of the Budget Committee, uh, Congressman, is the um, infrastructure bill, or uh, as the White House calls it, the American Jobs Act, $2 trillion uh, worth of improvements or public investment. Uh, what are the chances in the House? Uh, any Republican votes at all, do you see? Oh, I doubt it. Um, 
It's amazing how people's positions change on things when they're, <laughs> they're, they're not the party in power. Uh, and I say that with, for both parties, uh, you know, we, we were not, uh, we were b- very big on the filibuster during the, the Trump years. We're not very big on it right now. Um, but, um, this is something that, um, strangely enough, Republicans I, I, are so much on the wrong side of the country on this. And it's, it's just kind of, in a way it's, humorous in a way it's gratifying to hear them uh, grasp for arguments against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the notion that only 5% of this is infrastructure because it's only 5% for roads and bridges, which is not accurate, by the way, there's 600 billion or roughly a third of the, the entire packages for conventional infrastructure. But the idea that, that Republicans don't think that the electric grid is infrastructure, that broadband's infrastructure, that um, electric charging stations aren't infrastructure, that um, a, a, an affordable system for child care and senior care is not part of infrastructure is just a 19th century view of the country. And uh, it, it just is not relevant to today's world. As I've said on many occasions the last few weeks, if a, if a woman can't get to her job because she can't find affordable care for her kids or for a, a, a parent or grandparent she's taking care of, then that's just as much of an impediment as not being able to take public transportation. So, again, we just need to rethink, and we are, and I think the Biden administration has rightly defined infrastructure in a much more expansive way, and, and I think that's appropriate. So... I'm thrilled with the, with the package. When I heard about it the first time and they, they briefed us and went through it uh, point by point, I said, well, this is such a co- coherent plan. It all makes sense together. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and with, with the underlying theme, theme of doing something that will help with climate change and uh, I, I just think... Uh, it's, it's truly could be a transformative package for the country. And, uh, you know, I look forward to passing it. It's not going to be easy, uh, but w- next few months will uh, we'll tell. Uh, but in, in conversations with your Republican colleagues, um, they have to have projects, roads, bridges, sewage treatment plants or whatever in their districts that they know need updating or repairing or fixing, right? I mean, of course. And, and what's again, what did they tell you about that? (laughs) Well, they just don't right now. Well, first of all, the the corporate tax rate as a a means of paying for it is something that um, they all are defensive about. Yeah. But, you know, they freely admit that. And what, what is again, gratifying from my perspective is that you hear, Republican mayors, re- Republican county executives, Republican governors all say this is we desperately need this, as they did with the American Rescue Plan. So right now, congressional Republicans are the only people who are on the other side <laughs> of, the, of the issue. And I think they're just out on a limb and, and uh, will, you know, with a lot of people with saws behind them waiting to cut it off. <laughs> well, politically, right, Um That's what I question politically. um, If there's an opening for a new bridge, they'll want to be there at the ribbon cutting, right? (laughs) But they're they're voting against it. 
Right. We, we have a project that is desperately needed, not just in, in Kentucky, but all, and it's not in my district, but, uh, but throughout that part of the country, a bridge that goes across the Ohio at Cincinnati. It's called the Brent Spence Bridge. It, it is in very serious danger. As a matter of fact, Barack Obama made a trip there while he was president to talk about the need to do something about that bridge. And uh, this is, you know, a, a Democrat. Uh, well, it's two Republican states. Uh, we have a Democratic governor, but it's a Republican state. Uh, two Repu heavily Republican districts on either side of the river, but uh, they desperately need it. But more than that, this is I-75 corridor. It's the I-71 corridor. These, this is uh, uh, one of the major uh, commerce routes and uh, highways in the in the country. And this is the type of project that the the uh, American Jobs Act will help get done. And it's, again, desperately needed. Uh, Republicans are <laughs> crying for it. And uh, it's it's amazing to hear met, uh, Republicans in Congress. And I, I, you know, Steve Shabbat's the Republican congressman from Cincinnati. I haven't really heard him specifically on it, but it'll be interesting to see what he and uh, Portman and uh, Thomas Massey, who's the Congressman on my side of the river, uh, how they uh, regard this project? Because again, the citizens desperately need it. Do you think some of them may come around, uh, given pressure from local some of their local districts, their mayors or governors? Well, it didn't matter on the American Rescue Plan, that's for sure. Right. And and, yep. they were, and and they were lobbied heavily by the, by their mayors. Uh, you know, I I think if if they take the corporate tax. Uh, fund pay for away, then maybe some of them will change their minds. Uh, I, I think that's going to be the critical decision for some of them, but I still don't think we're going to get many Republicans to vote for it regardless. Well, there are enough Democratic votes in the House. If all the Democrats hold together, of course, they can get through the House. Uh, the Senate is always the bigger problem. Uh, Senator Coons has come forth with a proposal, uh, Congressman, I don't know whether you've seen yet, that he's, he's suggesting that uh, we could split um, the, the the Jobs Act into the what everybody would agree is infrastructure, right? Right. Uh, like $800 billion worth, and do that as a 60-vote bill, and then do the rest of the stuff, like you mentioned, broadband or electric grid. You and I would argue that that is infrastructure, but if they say it's not, put all of those other things like the child care, the uh, home care for the elderly, in a uh, and do that through reconcil through reconciliation, uh, is that a way to go? Do you think? I don't think so. No, I, I think that's a, that's a mistake. That's uh, you know it's analogous to the the issue of, of immigration reform. You you can do the easy the easy stuff's easy to do on a bipartisan basis. The more difficult stuff's not. <laughs> so so what we would have is uh, you know the Republicans would take all the credit for all those uh, ribbon cuttings as you mentioned, and then uh, they would destroy us for uh, our heavy handedness in doing Green New Deal projects. I mean, mm -hmm. that's exactly what would happen. And uh, I mean, I, if I were in their shoes, that's the way I would do it. So I just think that that's too convenient for Republicans and it puts us at a, uh, a real disadvantage in terms of messaging. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't intended to ask you about this, but you reminded me uh, you used the phrase immigration reform. It wasn't that long ago, Congressman, you were part of the uh, 
the I forget what the gang of fifteen or whatever it was it called. It was the gang of eight. <laughs> gang of eight in the House uh, on immigration reform. Right. Nobody talks about that anymore. No, and it's sad. You know, the, going back then, we were uh, the the Senate actually passed a bipartisan bill in the spring of twenty thirteen. Uh, I think there were seventeen or eighteen Republicans who voted for it. Uh, we we had come to a an agreement after seven months of negotiation and in the gang of eight, we were confident that we had a bill that would pass uh, the house with 250 or 60 votes. And we couldn't get John Boehner to, to, to bring it to the floor. And it's a tragedy because much of what we're experiencing today would have been, uh, would have been uh, solved again, almost eight years ago. If, if, if he had done that, and at the time, this is meaningless history now, but uh, Bob Goodlatte was chairman of the, mm-hmm. the House Judiciary Committee, and, and Bob was very much opposed to comprehensive immigration reform because he had watched Eric Cantor, uh, the then majority leader, lose his seat in the primary over immigration, and or at least that's what they, that was the narrative. And so he was paranoid about doing anything with immigration, but John Boehner would not go around him. And um, again, that, that's very unfortunate because we, we had a bill we knew could pass and we knew that it was good, it would it was something that could be, uh, that we could conference relatively easily because we crafted it in a way that it, we knew it would uh, it would satisfy the Senate as well. So it, it's it's too bad. But um, again, that. The thought then was there's certain parts of immigration reform that mm-hmm. are really easy and there's some that are really hard, but and that's why you don't separate them. Right. Um, one final a question on the corporate tax. As you mentioned, the Republicans have basically said, no way, no how are we going to support any increase in taxes. But isn't it a catch-22, Congressman? Because if you said, okay, well, then we'll just add this um, borrow, right, and add to the deficit, then they're against that too. Right. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't concern me that if if we were of all the things we could spend money on and not pay for it, uh, infrastructure is the best thing to do because it does pay for itself over time. And you know the the most every analysis says that it that every dollar spent on infrastructure returns a dollar fifty um, and. It, more importantly than that, it, it provides a foundation for the, the economy of the future, and we desperately need to do that. So I'm, I'm fine doing it uh, without having a pay for. I, I think there are probably too many Democrats who would not agree with me on that. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm not sure we could do it that way. But the question of the corporate tax rate, you know, in, in any sense of equity, you look at a company like Amazon, uh, made $30 billion in profit. They paid 1.2% federal tax last year, zero the two years before that. Their entire business is predicated on, on infrastructure. Uh, FedEx, I don't think, paid any federal tax. Their entire business, business is, is infrastructure. So to ask these, these corporations to, by the way, pay a rate that they would have been thrilled with uh, in 2017 Mm-hmm. It's not so much of a burden. And the, the executives I've talked to aren't really concerned about that. They say, yeah, take us to 25, take us to 28. It's fine. We'll deal with it. Um, and, and they didn't ask for 21% in 2017, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the corporations yeah, I, I, didn't. 
Right. I mean, it's not like they're paying anywhere close to 21%, right? Or 28%. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, the Republicans say, well, this will hurt small businesses. Well, that's nonsense because small businesses don't pay uh, corporate tax. <laughs> the vast majority of them are what's called subchapter S corporation, and the, the, and the profits pass through to them as individuals, and they pay at individual rates. So I mean, this wouldn't have any impact on, on the vast majority of small businesses. Is the bottom line here that the, that the really basis for the opposition is they just don't want Joe Biden to accomplish anything, just like well, they course. didn't. <laughs> okay. I just, might as well of course thought I'd just put that out there. Yeah, of course that's the bottom line. And, you know, again, maybe they don't believe in polls, but you look at every poll out oh, there yeah. and they're, they're swimming upstream against public opinion. That's for sure. For sure. Uh, on the tax question, uh, Congressman, one thing that is not in the president's plan is something that's been talked about a lot, and that is the so-called SALT issue, right? The state right. and local tax exemption thing that uh, Donald Trump did away with. Uh, any chance of that coming back? I don't know. That there, There's not unanimity among Democrats uh, to do away with the SALT deduction, and because but it's pretty popular uh, among the American people, right? I mean, it's pretty point. popular among the American people. Um, it does. It is kind of the, the I always liked it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I won't say it's killing me, but it's certainly the doing away with the salt deduction is certainly um, affecting me in a negative way. Um, and because we, we have a property tax in Kentucky and state, we have a state income tax and, uh, I have too much real estate and I'm paying a lot of property taxes and I can only deduct a, a small percentage of that. So, but, you know, it, it's a, it is a regressive uh, proposition because the, the deduction does uh, disproportionately affect wealthier people. Mm -hmm. So true liberals should say, and, and there many of them do, don't do away with it. But then you have a lot of true liberals in New York and, and California who are <laughs> adversely affected by eliminating the deduction, and they're kind of torn. <laughs> so the answer may be a cap uh, as to how much. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. I will not name him, but he's been a friend of mine for most of my life. And he's a very, very high placed uh, financial in the financial world in New York. And he said, uh, he said, the people I know are much more concerned about the salt deduction, deduction than, they, than they are about tax rates. He said you can you can increase their their top marginal rate on their income, you can re, uh, put the salt deduction back in, but uh, I mean you, you can raise the corporate tax, but the salt deduction is the biggest killer for them. Interesting, right, Congressman? We'll take a quick break here, and uh, a couple of other issues I want to ask you about. Again, good for you to spend some time with us. We're talking to Congressman John Yarmuth from Kentucky's third congressional district, also chair of the House Budget Committee. We'll be right back. And today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. 1.3 million members strong, the good men and women of the UFCW under Mark Perrone. They're the ones who serve us so well in our big retail stores, the big grocery chains, our meat and poultry processing plants, cannabis factories, and chemical factories, all on the front lines every day in this era of COVID. We salute the members of the UFCW. 
Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Direct you to their website for more information at ufcw.org. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With Congressman John Yarmouth from uh, Kentucky, chair of the uh, House Budget Committee, uh, co- Congressman, I got to ask you. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're from Kentucky, and there's another uh, pretty prominent <laughs> member of the Congress who is from Kentucky as well. Um, and the in a new book out by Susan Page, who is the Washington bureau chief for USA Today about Speaker Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi says of Mitch McConnell, quote, he is not a force for good in our country. He is an an enabler of the worst stuff and an instigator of some of it on his own. You know Mitch McConnell well, accurate description. Uh, Yeah, I think it's pretty close. I would I would certainly not differ with uh, the speaker on that. You know, I've known Mitch for a long time, uh, over 50 years. And Mitch is is a 100 percent political animal. You and I have talked about this on a number of occasions. Uh, I once said about him in an interview that he uh, every day since he was five years old, wake has awakened every morning. And the, the first thing he thinks about is, what do I do today to enhance my political power? And he that that's really all that's ever driven him. And, uh, you know, he's he's committed to um, I think he feigns that he is committed to principles and but he's not. He's only committed to power. So, you know, he. 
his legacy, which he will, he says his legacy is having packed the uh, federal court system with conservative justices. The problem is he has no end in mind for that. That mm-hmm. that wasn't a, a policy outcome that he was seeking with conservative judges. It was just an electoral issue. And that's the way he sees everything as an electoral issue. And that's a dangerous thing to have in a, in a, a person who is uh, running the Senate who has right now minority veto power uh, and and that's pride, concerning <laughs> and pride prides himself on not accomplishing anything or not getting anything done. I mean, it's, uh, he loves the phrase "grim reaper." The grim reaper. Uh, he, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really re, re uh, I haven't researched his uh, voting record over his thirty six years. I think this is his thirty seventh year, uh, but. I think you could put the number of bills with his name on it and uh, you could count them on one hand and none of them have been anything significant because he doesn't care about policy. Mm-hmm. He just never has. At one time he cared about, he, he had a sincere belief in um, in First Amendment and like he originally opposed flag burning amendments because he thought that was a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, he's changed on that as a matter of fact because that can, became uncomfortable with the Republican base, but he's never really wanted to accomplish anything except, uh, again, maintain power. And uh, what he did last in the last Congress, we passed about 400 bills that sat on his desk. Uh, the vast majority of them were bipartisan bills, and he didn't want to uh, put them on the floor because he wanted to protect his members from taking difficult votes. Although a lot of them weren't difficult votes, but some of them were, uh, and that—that's all he concern, he's concerned about is maintaining his majority and, and his power. Um, what's interesting, Bill, is I, I wrote an op-ed a few weeks ago uh, about the filibuster, and I said in the in the the filib- in the article that if we did away with the filibuster, that would be Mitch McConnell's kryptonite because he would lose all of his power. Now, I have said all sorts of critical things about Mitch McConnell over the 14 mm-hmm. plus years I've been in Congress. I've called him a liar on national television um, and gone from there. Uh, he's never, ever reacted to anything I said about him until that. No kidding. <laughs> a few days later, he had an op-ed uh, in the Louisville Courier-Journal in which he basically did everything but argue my position. Uh, it was mostly taking shots at me saying, well, if I, if I didn't like the way the Senate operated, I should run against him. And I said, you know, like, I don't want to represent the rest of Kentucky. I'm sorry. It just wouldn't be comfortable for me. But uh, it, was, it was fascinating because I, I, I hit a nerve. And you finally uh, got under his skin, got under his skin. Well, but here's somebody who did not get under his skin. And I want to ask you about I don't understand it. So last Saturday uh, at the uh, Republican donors meeting at at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump called Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch and attacked his wife for being a coward, basically, and and quitting her her job after the uh, uh, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And Mitch McConnell never said one word. I know. Why? How could it, you? It's interesting. You know, um, well, one thing I would say, 
I won't, I won't comment on the SOB part of that comment, but he, he, he certainly isn't dumb. I mean, right. anybody is making a mistake if they call Mitch dumb. Uh, but, you know, Elaine Chow was, I, I think she was kind of the only, one of the longest serving cabinet members. She served all but the last few weeks of the, the yeah. Trump administration. Yeah. She was as loyal as anybody could be for the, for uh, Trump to take, take her on at that point was really cruel and unfounded. But you're right. I mean, uh, Mitch understands, just like most of the Republicans do, that uh, if they want to take the majority back in the Senate in in 2022, that they can't afford to be on on mm. Trump's ba- mm. bad side. And so they'll even put up even put up with that. Yeah. Right. Well, it's just oh. like Ted Cruz putting up with all the nasty comments that about his Trump wife. made about his wife and father. Yeah. And father. Yeah. So the last time I saw you, Congressman, uh, in our studio on the Bill Press show, you were proudly wearing an F on your lapel. Um, Yeah, still do. And the F, uh, just so all of our listeners understand, stands for? It is my rating from the National Rifle Association. Which you are. Which I proudly wear. (laughs) Right. And have Uh, for the last two and a half years. So is the NRA, which is now a bankrupt organization, which its leader, Wayne LaPierre, uh, in court trying to defend his actions to basically steal money from the organization, Mm -hmm. are they still as powerful as they once were? Well, you know, it's it's always that's a you have to qualify that statement. They're not nearly as powerful overall, but they are still influential in with many members. And as I always say, people would always say, how can, you know, you, you have 90% support in the country for universal background checks and members still don't want to vote for that. And I say, the problem is not the 90%. The problem is of the, uh, the remaining 10%, they're two or 3% for whom that is their primary voting issue. They're a one issue voter. And these members worry about losing a thousand or two thousand or four thousand votes in their district if they were to mm-hmm. to do something the NRA doesn't like. So that's that's been the most frustrating, uh, one of the most frustrating aspects of of this job for so many years is um, is it's just that concern about a couple thousand votes here and there. And if you're in a marginal district. You do worry about that. You know, I, people say, oh, you're really courageous to vote against the NRA in Kentucky. I said, no, I'm not courageous at all. I said, there may be a couple thousand voters in my district who will vote against me uh, b- because of the gun, my gun position. But by the way, they're never going to vote for a Democrat anyway. So my position doesn't move any voters. And that that's kind of the way a lot of politicians think about these issues. And a lot of people, and I had a Democratic colleague of mine was one of them back a few years ago who said, I have to have an A rating from the NRA. I just have to. And whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that, there are a lot of members who feel that way. Now, they've, the NRA, I think because of what we did with wearing the F pins around and, and we all got, everybody who did it got great reaction from uh, on social media, the NRA has taken the, the rating system off their website. And when they did it, they said, we, we did it because our enemies are using them against us. <laughs> so I, right. I considered that a victory, but, you know, it, it's really frustrating that, you know, that yeah. something with, with that degree of, of public support cannot, 
cannot achieve what it's trying to do. But it and it does mean that President Biden will have uh, a very tough time getting any gun safety measures, uh, no matter how strongly he supports them through this Congress. Does maybe? But the other side of that is, and I think Schumer's going to do this. I think he's going to put that bill on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once he puts it on the floor, there are going to be some Republicans who are going to have to do some real deep thinking about whether they uh, how they vote, because Mitch has protected them from that vote, and now they won't be protected. Right. So uh, finally, Congressman, you know, who says that bipartisanship is dead? I know where one place where bipartisanship exists, and that is in the Congressional Bourbon Caucus. Um, it's, you, it you, and a, you and a friendly Republican are co-chairs of the Congressional Bourbon Caucus. So I'm sure now, you know, a lot of industries have suffered because of the pandemic. How's the pandemic affected the bourbon industry? Well, it's it's been good and it's been bad. Um, obviously, they're um, in in store dining. You know, the dining, the bars, the the restaurants. That's uh, that that consumption has be, has dropped by a huge percentage. So they've lost that. They've actually done very well on the packaging side. So people going into liquor stores and buying bottles and drinking them at home. So that side's been way up. Uh, the, uh, the, the other side has been way down. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're doing fine. The biggest threat to bourbon right now is the tariff that the uh, European Union uh, has put on, on uh, bourbon. And that Go, it will. It's now twenty five percent. It's actually in a hiatus. They've suspended it, but if uh, nothing happens, it'll go to fifty percent on June first. And the distillers are, you know, they figure they're pretty much saturated the market here. They've achieved as much uh, penetration as they can in the U.S. They, their real opportunities for growth have been overseas, and but a fifty percent tariff in the European Union and the U.K would basically eliminate the export business. So we're pushing back on with the administration trying to get them to uh, you know negotiate the end of that. The, the 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 bourbon tariff had absolutely nothing to do with with any of the disputes. It was basically uh, an attempt by the EU to put pressure on Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and but cuz because because Kentucky yeah, because distilled spirits had had gone back and forth to Europe, United States with no tariffs for years, and everybody was happy with that. But the EU, because of the steel and aluminum tariffs, wow. they they decided to put pressure on Mitch. So it's it's unfortunate, and we had a bipartisan letter, fifty members of the House, uh, almost equally uh, Republican and Democrat, who to, writing to our trade representative, uh, uh, Ambassador Ty, to. Uh, push her to, to resolve this before June 1st. So, so e- either with your uh, co-chair of the Congressional Caucus hat on or with your consumer hat on, Congressman, do you have any tips for uh, best bourbon you might recommend if somebody was going out to get get a, you know, a little... Oh, well, so... For this so weekend? I, I, yeah, so I do it. I, my default bourbon is Woodford Reserve or Buffalo Trace. Um, Old Forester is also a very good value. So... And so those are the ones that I prefer if I had the other way I answer that question is if I had one uh, drink of bourbon left in my life, what would it be? And it's uh, Elijah Craig, 23 year old. And I'll tell a quick story uh, at, on Trump's inauguration at five. I didn't go to the inauguration, but I stayed at home and watched it. My <laughs> wife and I were there and at five minutes to 12, 
I said, you know, we need to we need to toast the last minutes of the Obama administration because <laughs> the next four years are going to be really stressful. So we so broke you, out a we broke out a bottle of Elijah Craig, twenty three year old. Oh and, man, and, uh, that's what we did. Uh, so, right. but yeah, uh, but I, here's the other tip I have built that you know the Kentucky Derby's coming up in a couple of weeks, two weeks from Saturday, and there's a horse who won the Wood Memorial at seventy two to one. It's going to run in the Derby called Bourbonic. Oh, Bourbonic, huh? Yeah. Bourbonic. So mm -hmm. I guarantee you I will be betting on Bourbonic. All right. There you go. Well, <laughs> and I think a lot of other people will be now. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Congressman John Yarmouth, it's good to catch up with you on many, many fronts, Congressman. Thanks so much for your good work on behalf of the people of Kentucky and the people of the United States. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, Bill. Great to be with you. Take care. And that's it for today's episode of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, we've made a lot of progress, but we're not out of the woods yet. Now, everybody is qualified to get the vaccine. They're 16 and older, so no excuses. Go out and do that as soon as you can if you haven't already done so. And meanwhile, continue to wear that mask, practice your social distancing, keep yourself safe and strong until we see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.